There's a meme going around on the internet that I've seen people post, and it goes something like this. And I've seen this this week. It's kind of fresh on my mind. It says, it doesn't matter how many Sundays you sit in church, God sees what you do and how you treat people, and that's what really matters. Now, there are problems with this statement. There are problems probably with the attitude behind it. First, it does matter how many Sundays you sit in church. Okay, try to sit out of church for a year and see how your soul's doing. But try to also sit in church for, three, for 52 Sundays a year, and then you see how your soul's doing. You'll realize going to church matters immensely. If you will commit yourself to coming to church, if you'll commit yourself to tithing 10% of your gross income, you will find it's not going to necessarily mean you're, gonna, uh, uh, you're not going to uh, have more money, but you're definitely going to have more Jesus. And your, your, your life will be about making more of our King if you will commit yourself to the plan and to be obedient to what God has told us to do. So it matters when we don't forsake the assembly together. It matters because God says it matters. It matters because we all know there's a difference in our walk whenever we prioritize worship. But the other part of the meme is also problematic. Yes, God does see what we do. And God uh, considers how we treat people to be important. But doing certain things and treating people in a certain way doesn't justify people before God. You can be proud of yourself that you treat people better than church people do, but no matter who says something like that, aren't we all hypocrites? I mean, anyone who points a finger at somebody and calls them a hypocrite is a hypocrite too. Because everyone needs Jesus. And this little statement, though, it teaches us something. It teaches us what the world is thinking about us. It teaches us about how the world is watching us. And they're watching, how do these Christians live? They say their king is Jesus. They say their life has been changed. Is it really changed? Are we really living good and right and godly lives like we claim we want to live? People are looking to see if the gospel really changes people. And so today as we finish the book of Titus, the main takeaway, the aim of this sermon, the aim of this passage is this. The grace of God gives the people of God a new fruitful way to live that is in stark contrast to the old unfruitful way of life. So when we're Christians, the grace of God, because of what the gospel is, because of what God has done, has given us a new life that is in stark contrast to our old life. And I wrote that sentence out, and I really worked on it, and I put it in bold in my manuscript. And then I looked back at our text from last week, and in verse 11, it basically said the same thing much better. So I'll just read it to you from, here's the aim of the sermon out of God's Word. (laughs) The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives now. We didn't used to live that way, but the grace of God has appeared and we can live that way now. Paul tells Titus, teach these things and don't apologize for what you're teaching. He says, teach them without reservation. He says, Titus, teach these Cretans. And remember, we talked about these Cretans. If you call someone a Cretan, that's not a good thing to be called. It's not a good thing to call somebody. Cretans had a reputation for being dishonest, for being of low character. And and the way they behave themselves, now that they're Christians, these Christian Cretans, 
needed to be living in a way that showed that God had changed them. To, remember, we talked about being a reflection to people that God is real. A watching world needs to see that God is real in your life. And that's true today, isn't it? The light has shined on us, just like the sun shines on the moon, and our lives are a reflection of that light, giving light to a dark and dying world. Point one, the Christian witness is a living witness. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 in Titus. Notice these commands here. Paul tells Titus to remind the people, be submissive to rulers and authorities. Now that's talking about government authorities, but also spiritual authorities, all authorities. Be obedient, be submissive. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work. So it's one thing to be submissive and to be passive, but we're also to be ready to do and to help and to pitch in. To speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. To be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now these two verses don't say everything you could say about how Christians should live. But they do give us a good idea of where we should be focusing our attention. Submission to authority. Obedience. Ready for good work. Speaking well of others. Not fighting. Having a gentle spirit. Showing courtesy towards everyone. Are these easy things to do? No, these are hard things. But when the world sees you doing these things, it is so unexpected. What does the world expect from people? That they'll be rebellious? That they won't do what they're told? That they will be lazy and apathetic? That people gossip? That people fight? That people aren't gentle? That they're rough? And that they're not courteous? And gosh, haven't you noticed that since, you know, I think, I don't know what happened to our culture after COVID, but hasn't it seemed that everywhere you go, things are just harder? It's harder to get people to help you in a store. It's harder for restaurants to find wait staff and all of these things. And so we go into a situation, and here we are at the store, and they don't have enough employees, or we're at the restaurant, and they don't have enough wait staff. And what is our tendency? To grumble, to get upset. And don't you know those waiters and waitresses and those store clerks? and every, Don't you know that all the time that's what they're encountering? How refreshing would it be for a believer to come in there and be loving? To, 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 to say, hey, can I, can I grab that for you? Can I help you? I've done that before at McDonald's. I've just wiped down the tables. And I'm not sure what they thought about that, but it certainly wasn't what they were expecting. Uh, what, and so we can live in such a way that it surprises other people. Christians can stand out in our ability to love and respect people who don't love and respect others. We can think about the government. Is the government always going to do things you agree with? No. And you might not agree at all with the person that's in power. But these Christians in Crete, what were they contending with? Nero? We don't have it that bad, do we? And yet Paul even told those people under the emperor Nero to be submissive to rulers and authority. He told them to be obedient, to show respect, to work to make life easier for those officials who might have been oppressing them. And when our attitudes are that way, is it a pain to have to go? We've been working on our bus barn, and Bobby's had to, uh, as our chairman of property committee, has, we're working with the city to make sure that we're doing everything by the law. And is, you know, we, could say, we could have an attitude. Well, we're a church. We have answer to a higher power. We're not going to get permits. We're not going to do this or that. But we're not doing that, are we? We're showing 
respect to our governmental authorities. And we're, we're doing this with kindness and with courtesy. And when our actions and our attitudes are kind and gentle like Jesus, it will give people a reason to stop and listen to the gospel. But how do we live this way? Because when I read the, those first two verses, I think, I can't do that. That's really hard. Well, I certainly and you certainly can't do these things on your own. How can a Christian live this way? How can a Christian live in such a humble way? There are two things in our passage that fuel the Christian witness. One is our past, and one is the, the grace of God. One is our past, the other is the grace of God. Now, it's interesting in this passage, if you kind of break, think of the structure, and there's words that, that uh, give us indications of kind of where he begins a new thought, he, but, for, he kind of uses those transition words, and you can kind of break the passage down into understanding how he's making this argument. Here's the way to live. How do we live this way? Look at verse 3. It says, live this way, and how can we live this way? By remembering the past. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. When we stop to think of where we were, doesn't that help us love the lost? Doesn't that help us love people who are different than we are? That helps us love people who are hateful to think, I used to be hateful. I used to think like this. I used to be the same way. I was foolish, disobedient. I believed lies. I wasn't led by the Spirit. I wasn't ruled by any authority. I was ruled by my passions and my pleasures. I wasn't kind. I was malicious, jealous, hated, hateful. And when I look at the way I used to be, as it's described in verse 3, that's how we all used to be. Even the Apostle Paul said, that's how I was, that's how you were. And we can all say, this describes the state of lostness pretty well. We don't know how to live when we're lost. We don't know how to live when we're in bondage to sin and slavery. But when I look at verse 3, I think one thing. Who wants to live like that? What a terrible way to live. And once you've come to know the truth, you can look back and say, that's lostness. That's who I was way down deep. I was able to hide it. I was able to put on a mask and a smiling face. But that's who I was. And the only difference between me and that person in verse 3 is God's grace. So when I remember that the only reason that I know the truth, the only reason that I'm a believer is because God did something about it, that keeps me humble. Is there any difference between you and the worst sinner in the world? No, not in God's eyes except for His grace. You didn't deserve to be saved more than anybody else. There was nothing you did to earn God's interest or favor. It was all His grace. Look at verses 4-8. through Here's who we were, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. You didn't save yourself. Look what it says in the next phrase. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's not talking about baptism. That's talking about regeneration. That's talking about being born again. 
And I love thinking about that phrase, born again. Every time I say those words, I remember when I was at Howard Payne and I was the, the music leader, that's what they called me. I was the, the, the song leader. I was the song leader at First Baptist Church of Blanket. And we had this pastor. He was, a, he was the pastor there. And his regular job was he was the typesetter at the Brownwood Bulletin. That's what he had done for years and years and years. He's a printer. And uh, he would tell people. He was, he was kind of rough, you know. Wasn't educated at seminary and all this, but he knew the gospel. And he would tell us every week, you must be born again. You must be born again. That was his main message. You must be born again. You were born the first time, but you've got to be born again. And how do we get born again? By the grace of God. When God does something on the inside to give you a new life, it's described like this. We were washed and renewed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that by being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's amazing. It's an amazing thing to stop and think about those eight verses, or, or, or four through eight. You could just think about these verses over and over again and how they are trustworthy and how they are true. According to His mercy, He washed us. So I chose that hymn we sang, Victory in Jesus. He plunged me to victory beneath His cleansing flood. That really describes what's happening in that verse, doesn't it? Or, or, or expounds upon it or puts it in a poetic way where it allows us to sing it. We were washed. Uh, we, the washing of regeneration. The renewal of the Holy Spirit that was poured out on us richly through Christ our Savior. If you want to live a humble life before God, always be reminded of who you were before God's grace and then remember that but for the grace of God you would still be there. God's grace is the antidote for pride. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. God's grace abounds to the sinner. And it fuels our devotion to the Lord and to doing good works. Be ready to do good works. Be this way, be this way, be this way. That's hard. But I'm not doing this alone. It's not just me trying to do good works. When He saved me, when He borned me again, when He washed me and regenerated me, it says here that He gave me the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit allows us to live that life of obedience. That life of being ready to do good works. That life of humility and submission. A fruitful and profitable life. Look at verse 8. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things. He's talking about verses 4-7. through seven. Insist on the Gospel. The gospel is trustworthy so that you, those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Paul says this gospel is trustworthy. This saying is trustworthy. Insist on it. Make a point of it. Get in the pulpit and talk about it so that the people will do good works. These gospel truths are excellent and they are profitable for people. The, you know, we, we, we joke around every time I say that in the sermon where I, talk, I, I give that quote from The Mandalorian. It says, and that's a Disney, sort of like a Disney TV show. 
And the Mandalorians are a character, kind of a, a, I don't even know what you would call them, a cult. I don't know what they are. But they say, they always say, this is the way. This is the way. Well, that's from the Bible. You know, this is the way. Walk in it. That's what we're told in Scripture. This is the way. This is the way. Insist upon these things because these things are excellent and they are profitable. This is the way to live. You know, I don't look at stars much. I don't ever think I really just go outside and look up at the sky. Or at least it's been a long time since I've done that. But this week we were at church camp, and Lonnie says, all right, boys, uh, give me one flashlight, and we're going to go outside. Y'all remember this, White and West? We went outside. And so Lonnie walked all of us out, and we were at Camp Chaparral in Iowa Park, and, and it's pretty good ways away from the city of Wichita Falls. And it was dark out there. And so we walked out there in the dark, and we all looked up at the sky. And Lonnie said, okay, he was pointing out different stars to us. And he says, now the bottom two stars of the, the Big Dipper, was it the Big Dipper or the Little Dipper? The Big Dipper, those bottom two stars will always point at the North Star. And that North Star, boys, never moves. It's always going to be right there. And he was telling them, it's like the Word of God. The Word of God is always going to be what it is. Right and wrong is never going to change. You can always trust what God's Word says. Don't get away from it. When you get home, boys, read your Bible. And Lonnie was encouraging them, and he was telling them. And I was listening to what he was saying, and I was like, oh, this is really good that he's, he's telling these boys this. But I was looking up at the sky, and I was just thinking, this is unbelievable. <laughs> you could see the Milky Way. You could see it right that I kept asking Lonnie, is that the Milky Way that we're seeing so clearly out here? I hadn't looked at stars in a long time. And in fact, sometimes I go so long without looking at stars, I just forget that they're up there. You ever do that? Just, you just, we never think about the stars. Now, I guess if you go hunting at night and you lose your compass, you're really going to need those stars, though, aren't you? But if you just find a place, now I know there's a place out, uh, I can't remember where, what that's near, Benjamin or somewhere up there, there's a park called Copper Breaks. Has anybody ever been to Copper Breaks? Now, apparently, that's a certified dark sky. There's a scale of one to nine, one being as dark as it can be outside and nine being inner city. And Copper Breaks is on a two. And I would like to go out there and check that out because apparently you can see the stars and the Milky Way very well out there. But if you just go out there or you go outside when it's dark, if you just start thinking about the stars and looking up there, it'll blow your minds to think, I'm looking at a hundred stars, hundreds of stars here, but I know there are billions more out there that our God has made. But the gospel is sort of like looking at the stars or not looking at the stars. There's this huge, fixed truth in the universe that isn't going anywhere. Paul says it's a trustworthy saying. You can always count on it being there, just like the stars in the sky. But sadly, we get so busy living life, we become distracted. And if we're not careful, just like I don't think about the stars being up there, it's possible for us to go through a day in our life and not think about the gospel being there. And the bright lights of the world can drown out the radical, transformative gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul knows that. He stops. He's in the middle of talking about the gospel. He says, this is a trustworthy saying. Titus, this is what matters. This is what makes a difference. This is what is excellent. This is the engine for love and world-changing and kingdom advancement. This is what takes a disgusting Cretan life and makes it beautiful. Trust it. 
Insist on it. I wonder if you can step out right now like we did the other night. Just in your heart. Can you step outside of the cabin and behold this good news of Jesus Christ? Perhaps you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But the good news is that if you will trust Him today because of His life and His sacrificial death and His resurrection, you can trust in Jesus today that He did everything that was necessary to make you right with God. Why not have a Savior today? Why not trust Him right now? Why not know forgiveness and eternal life? He did all the work to save you. And when He does save you, He will give you the Holy Spirit. He will transform your life. And all of us in here that are believers can tell you that that is not an easy process. It's not an easy process to be up there on the potter's wheel. But we don't do it alone. We have a helper. God Himself. The Holy Spirit living inside of us. But it's still hard, isn't it? The life of faith and the life in the church is difficult. The distractions are always there in our midst. He even mentions distractions in verses 9-11. through 11. Look there. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are they're not excellent and profitable. He says they're unprofitable and worthless. As for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, and this is interesting, it says that the divisive person is self-condemned. I know what it means to condemn myself is when I know I'm wrong. That says that the divisive person deep down knows he's wrong. He's condemned himself. Now what is he talking about here with this distraction of division? He's talking about those Christians with a Jewish background who would get wrapped up in debates over pedigree and legalism. And we can be like that, can't we? You know, get, get, get a bunch of Baptist pastors together. We love to argue and debate. And not all of that's bad. Sometimes there are important things we need to protect and fight for theologically. But those have to be very essential things, like the authority of God's Word, truth and clarity of the Gospel, calling out those who abuse the Holy Spirit. But even if we're thrust into a righteous fight, we must not devote ourselves to fighting. We must not fight like the world. But you know, the fights that often get going in churches among believers... They usually don't have anything to do with anything that matters. Personality conflicts. They spring up when people refuse to submit to church leadership. The pastor's calling those to holiness and people don't want to go. And it's easier to fight than repent. The nastiest thing you can ever witness, in my opinion right now, is what they call Christian Twitter. I know I've told you all about this, but watching Christians who claim Christ interact on Twitter... And these are people that are working at churches and seminaries and parachurch organizations, and they're just downright mean to each other, combative over theology. And they're talking about important things, but they talk about it in the most sinful of ways. It doesn't make us seem like we're like Christ at all. What do we do with these dividers? Well, Paul says, warn them. Warn them once, warn them twice, and then have nothing to do with them. And why did Paul feel that way? Why is it important not to give the divisive person in the church bandwidth in your church? Because there's real ministry to do. Controversies can consume all your time. And then your, your priorities become out of whack. I always love it when I, when, I, when I look at Twitter and I see a pastor say, I can't do this anymore. 
I'm going to quit Twitter and just go back and serve my church. I think that's a good idea. I should probably just quit reading this and go serve my church. But we can't allow those distractions and those divisions to consume us. We have to prioritize ministry. What are the priorities? Go back to verses 1 and 2. Paul said what the priorities were. This is the way to live. This is the way that's excellent. This is the way that's profitable. Fueled by humility, knowing where you came from, and fueled by the power of the gospel, knowing what God has done in your life, you're able to do verses 1 and 2. Do good works. Be fruitful. Be excellent. Be profitable. Then in verse 12, he gives some personal instructions. I just love this. We always think about Christianity. What's Christianity about? Some people want to go be pastors of churches, and I think when, when people are in seminary and they want to go be a pastor of a church, and they think, uh, you know, I'm going to have systems, and we're going to have programs, and we're going to, have, we're going to do it this way, and do it this way, and do it this way. And the reality of ministry and the reality of being a member of a church is a church isn't about a building, is it? It's not about programs. It's not about sitting around reading books. Church is always about people. Church is always about relationships, and we know that because we see it all through the New Testament. When I sent Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. I don't know how a lawyer got in there, but uh, it's, I guess it's encouraging to know even lawyers can get in the Bible. But he's, he's talking about people, and he's saying, hey, uh, you know, do, do, your, do your best to come to me, guys. Come to me in the way. It's about the relationship Paul had with these guys that he needed them. And they needed him. And these guys had needs to get to where they were going. And the, the church was told, make sure that their needs are covered so that the gospel may go forward, so that we can be profitable and fruitful. And he says in verse 14, and let our people, let our people, and I love thinking about the church that way. We're each other's people, aren't we? Let our people, we're going to, it's our people, we're going to be different than the world. We're marked off from the world. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All those who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. I want to close with that idea of verse 14. Don't be unfruitful. Remember the aim of this sermon. God's grace has given us a new way, a new fruitful way to live in stark contract with the old unfruitful way of life. That new fruitful way prioritizes submission to authority. It prioritizes being ready to do good works, to focus on relationships. The new fruitful life of the new fruitful believer never forgets where it came from. The new fruitful life is powered by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The new fruitful life avoids divisive people and prioritizes things that are urgent. Why? Because people are watching what we do. People are watching how we live. You're the gospel witness wherever you are. God's created the good works to do. And in us, He's created the workers to do the good works. You know, that's kind of the way you think about a gardener in a garden. You know, the cynical gardener, you walk up to the gardener and you see this beautiful garden they make and you say, wow, it's amazing what you and God have done together to make this garden. And the cynical gardener says, well, you should have seen it before God got it. But, that was pretty good. But it misses the point, doesn't it? It misses the point. 
That God made the garden and God made the gardener to work in the garden. That God's in control of it all. That He has a plan. And His plan for us when He redeemed a people, like we studied in Sunday school in Jeremiah, when God has redeemed a people for Himself, He's created in us a, a, a people, a kingdom of priests, a peculiar people that are going forth to proclaim His excellencies by doing good works, by sharing the gospel with other people, by living the Christian life and being witnesses. God makes the harvest and God makes the harvesters. I loved at VBS that we had a, the family of harvesters here. And you think about when the harvest is happening, when it's moving from here all the way up or however it goes. You just think of all that fruit out in the fields. It's profitable. It's productive. It's excellent. That's how we're supposed to be. God has made the harvest. He gives the harvest. And He sends us out to be the harvesters. As we live in this in-between time between the resurrection of Jesus and His second coming, we are designed, we are created to produce a harvest of good works that show the goodness of God to the world. A world that runs on fuel and hate. And we show it how it can love on faith and love. So look for the places where you can do good. Where can you be a shining star in the darkness? Where can you be a tree planted by living water, bearing fruit in season and out of season? 